Well, Sarah and I have been watching this new program on PBS. It's called Downton Abbey. Have you all heard of Downton Abbey? You have. Listen to this. Those of you who haven't, you should watch more television. Um, Downton Abbey is this magnificent estate in northern England. Now, that is a parsonage, you know? It's this magnificent estate in northern England, and uh, it's been in the Crawley family for centuries. And Lord Robert, who is the the dandy-looking fellow there above the capital A, Abbey, Lord Robert, the Earl of Grantham, he's the current head of Downton. And, And the show is, you know, one of those upstairs, downstairs, uh, period pieces set in the 20th century. And you can see, you know, the, the folks on your right, they, they live obviously upstairs. And then the folks, uh, you know, on the left, they live downstairs. And uh, it highlights the drama and the comedy and the soapy and sneaky lives of the servants and the butlers and the maids and the footman and the second footman and the aristocratic family of this Downton Abbey estate. The Crawleys have uh, three daughters, no sons, which is a major problem uh, because of the estate laws. And so as the story unfolds, we find out that uh, young Matthew, who is the uh, gentleman in the kind of cream-colored suit there to the left of Maggie Smith. Is that who that is? Maggie Smith above the O there. That is, he's kind of the heir apparent uh, distant relative of uh, Lord Robert. And wow, I'm telling you, there's a thousand and one illustrations right up there. Uh, but that's another series. The, the main plot of Downton Abbey, the, the main plot driver in this program is kind of twofold. The love of the estate, the love of the estate and this duty to family, love of, love of estate and duty to family. Because, you know, in the Regency era, the Regency era, uh, this Jane Austen-like era that was kind of fading away at the beginning of the 20th century, Downton Abbey was more than a house, more than just bricks and mortar. It was, it was an economic engine. That's what it was. And Downton produced a steady income that created jobs. And then it freed the family uh, from having to earn its living by daily effort. And so, so Lord Robert is simply the present custodian, temporary at that, for the next heir, this young Matthew. So, Downton Abbey. Dial it up. Why am I telling you this? Here's why. Interestingly enough, the world of Downton Abbey helps me understand our scripture reading in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. Because the world of Downton Abbey was much closer to the world of the rich young ruler than our world. You see, I, I, I read these verses through the lens of you know, being a 21st century American 
with a 21st century perspective on American wealth, which, which is this. You know, you know as, as Americans, we, we have this assumption we, about wealth. Uh, we, we have our economy, one of the assumptions of the American economy is that there is an unlimited amount of goods and resources. That's just one of the assumptions, whether you know it or not, that's just kind of a, that's a driver. And so, and so then with that perspective, you ask the question, well, okay, so how does someone get wealthy in our American economy? And we come to the conclusion generally that we become wealthy through hard work, hard work and, you know, dumb luck. If you work hard and if you get lucky, then, you know, and then Therefore, when we consider how poverty emerges, you know, we're in this American economy, 21st century mindset with unlimited goods and resources. You get rich through hard work and some luck. Then the reason poverty emerges is because, well, twofold, either people are just flat lazy, no no initiative, or they lack opportunity. Okay? That's That's our... lens through which we see this, this thing called wealth, which did not exist. Those assumptions, that lens did not exist in first century Israel, where goods and resources were limited. They were limited in Israel. And, and therefore, how did one grow wealth? Well, they did it by one of two ways. God's favor, God's favor, or they defrauded the weak, or they defrauded the weak. And then, and then how does poverty occur? Well, poverty occurs because someone is out of favor with God. Wasn't that Job's friend's assumption about Job? He's out of favor with God or abuse by the elite, abuse by the elite. So we, we really have to... We really have to be careful when we read this passage of Scripture that we're, we're not you know, interjecting our 21st century assumptions and presumptions about, about uh, you know, goods and resources and wealth and poverty. We need to think like a first century Israelite. And so, so as we consider these verses, I want us to listen to some conversations that take place between Jesus and the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler. We, we know that he's young. Matthew 19 has Matthew's account of this passage of Scripture, and we know he's young there. And Luke 18 tells us he was a ruler. Okay? Ruler. And, and possibly that meant that he was a synagogue ruler. A synagogue ruler. Okay, so the rich young ruler, Jesus has a conversation with him, I, and then Jesus has a conversation with the disciples, and then, and then he's going to have a conversation with us. And so it's really, well, three conversations. No, actually it's one conversation to three audiences. And as we look at these verses, what we're going to learn is that the question people often ask isn't really the, que- it, it, isn't really the question of the heart We're going to learn how Jesus uncovers the question of the heart, the unasked 
question, and, and it's this. I'll tell you what it is right now. It is this. Who owns me? Who possesses me? To what or to whom am I most loyal? So, let's first proceed with Jesus and the rich young ruler. Well, what a day it's been in Mark chapter 10. Jesus Jesus had been jousting with the Pharisees there in Mark chapter 10 over the issue of divorce and remarriage. And then after that, he's got to joust with the disciples uh, who were obstructing parents and their little children, young enough to hold and hug. And he's got to rebuke the disciples. And then verse 17 says, as Jesus started on his way, another encounter occurred. A man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him, asking him perhaps what was the most substantial question that Christ had been asked. Think about all, of all the questions that Jesus is asked in the Gospels. Uh, this is perhaps the most substantial. I mean, the Pharisees, they would ask him questions like, uh, you know, teacher, is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They didn't care about that issue. They just wanted to trap him. Uh, later on in Mark chapter 12, verse 14, they would ask another question. that They, they would say, teacher, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? They don't, they just want to trap him. They want to catch him off guard. But here is a question about the meaning of life, about why we exist. Finally, at, at last, someone asks a substantial question, a question that opens the door to understanding why Jesus came. The question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The disciples hadn't even asked that question, had they? But this man does. And as usual, Jesus responds not merely to the words of the question, but the heart behind the question. He answers in a way that addresses the unasked question, starting with the word good. (laughs) Good. Now, why do you call me good? Jesus says. No one is good except God alone. Good. You called me good. We both know that no one is good except God alone. So are you affirming my oneness with the Father? Is that what you're doing? Are you affirming that the, I and the Father are one? Are you, and therefore, are you prepared to accept the consequences of such a profession? Is that what's going on here? Well, you know the commands, verse 19. You know the law. I've not come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill the law. And by the way, these, in verse 19, happened to be the last five of the Ten Commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, to defraud. That would be the equivalent of the coveting command because as, as a Downton Abbey estate owner, this land-owning rich young ruler would have had tenants and back then, as those of you who are reading and studying through and memorizing the letter of James, James criticizes those landowners who are defrauding the tenants, you see. Jesus says, you know, you know, keep God's law. And the person says, well, I have, verse 20. I've done this since my youth. I've kept these commands. And the implication is, well, you know, I'm good too. Good teacher, well, I'm good too. And and yet there was something nagging at his spirit that led him to this particular conversation at this particular point in his life with Jesus. And he wanted to be sure. When at the last day, 
God brought about the age to come, healing this broken, fallen world. God ushers in this new age. This man wants to make sure he's on the right team. He wants to make sure he's wearing the right jersey. So it's like, what else do I need to do, okay? I've been working on this house, and I've been building it and everything, and I've got two nails left to drive into the house. Tell me where to put the nails, okay? Have I left anything out? And what follows is, I think, one of the most touching verses in all of Scripture. Verse 21 says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and agaped him. Agape love. That's selfless, other-centered, God-saturated, this is for your good and benefit kind of love. Jesus saw into his heart and loved him. And then he said this. Here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to divest yourself of Downton Abbey. Sell it. Give the proceeds to the poor. Come and follow me. I want you to join me. I want you. I want you to join the 12. I want you to join the others in my gospel community. I want you to become one of my disciples. I want you to depend on me and lean on me and trust me. Thus far, you've lived, uh, you've heard it said kind of life. But I say unto you, this is, this is what I'm, I want you to let me be your Downton Abbey. I'm offering you more right now than what you have right now. I'm offering you everything because I'm offering you myself. And I want you to make that decision right now. Now. I don't want you to think about it. I don't want you to have a committee meeting about it. I don't want you to fast about it or pray about it. Right here, right now, it's decision time. I'm offering you myself. What do you want? And Jesus did not blink when he said that. And when he said that, the man's face literally says his face clouded over. I mean, one moment, it was a sunny day in Phoenix. And then in the very next moment, he was in Seattle. The clouds came, and his face fell, and he went away sad. And, and verse 22, Mark keeps the tension here, and it's only in verse 22 that we learn why he went away Sadly, it says, for he had great wealth. And he walks. And Jesus just stands there. And the 12 are also there, you know. I mean, they see the man walk, and then they, they, see, they see Jesus let him walk, and they're looking at Jesus, and he's not blinking. And it's like, what are you doing? Why didn't you tell him to sell everything? I mean, give it away? Come and follow? You didn't say that to the Gadarene demoniac. Mark chapter 4, verse 18. This guy begged to come with you, and you sent him home. What's up with that? 
He didn't say that to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, he was a rich dude. I mean, he, he gave back, he, okay, he gave back four times as much as he had defrauded people, and he gave half his estate to the, the poor. I mean, it was, you know, he, he, he sold his Downton Abbey. He's just called Downton now. I mean, he got rid of half, and, and you said salvation has come to this house. What, you know, what's up with that? So I don't think we're getting anywhere to the bottom of things if we just say, well, in order to be a true and faithful believer and Radical follower of Christ, this means that every person in every situation at every time in every congregation must sell everything if they want to be a Christian. No, I don't think we're getting to the bottom of things if that's our conclusion. This, this command was for this particular person in this particular situation. But why this particular person? And why this particular situation? And how does that challenge me about my particular situation Why that man? I think we've got to go back to verse 20. Jesus looked at him. Jesus Jesus could see something that everybody else misses. He could see, he could see, he could see that for this man, his Downton Abbey had become not simply a tool or an instrument, but it had become an idol. His Downton Abbey had become his identity. His Downton Abbey had become his scorecard. His Downton Abbey had become a means of measuring his worth and his status and his significance. And he could see, Jesus could see that the rich young ruler's major plot drivers in his life were his love of a state and his duty to family. And, and, and did you notice in that condition, the scripture says Jesus loved him. He loved him. So it doesn't say he looked at him and was repulsed by him or was angry with him. Jesus looked at him and loved him, and he wanted him to part with the one thing that was fighting for his heart. He wanted him to part with his family and to part with his family estate. He wanted him to follow in the footsteps of Abraham who had left his Downton Abbey in Ur. And then later, God asked him to part with his firstborn son, Isaac. And to this rich young ruler, Jesus said, I want you to picture life with no money, no inheritance, no estate, no annuity, no pension, no Downton Abbey, no servants, no mansion, just me. All you have is me. Can you live like that? And in that moment, and it was a defining moment in this man's life, when Jesus made that ask, the rich young ruler learned something about himself that Jesus already knew. He, he learned that the most important question in his life was not, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The most important question was, who owns me? Who possesses me? Who is the king of my heart? And, and as he walked away, he found out, didn't he? And Jesus knew, and now he knew, and the disciples knew, and now, now we know. Downton Abbey owned him, and he wasn't willing to part it, part with it for life with Christ. He wasn't willing to do that. And this is where we learn what eternal life is. Eternal, li- eternal life, or the kingdom of God, or salvation, is nothing less 
than a relationship with Jesus. Jesus himself said as such in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, his son. Eternal life is a relationship with Jesus. Think about it. Think about it. We've We've daydreamed, haven't we? We fantasized what would have been like to walk first century Israel and to be there in the presence of Jesus of Nazareth. We've thought about that. And, and, and then now, look, he's there. And Jesus has looked at him in the eyes. He said, I want you to join me. I want you to join our community. Jesus saw something in this man's life that led him to the conclusion, I see a future in you that is so far beyond anything you can ask or imagine. If you think what you have now is wealth, there's nothing compared to what I have to offer you. Jesus was offering this man more than what he currently had. And here's the deal. What if this man had said yes? What if he'd said absolutely? What if he'd said, wait, I'm going to go sign the papers right now. I'm going to go to my father and take care of this. I'll be right back. And then he goes. He goes to Lord Robert and has a very awkward conversation. But, you know, he comes back with bags of gold. He says, help me distribute this, Jesus. Will you help me share this? Can you picture the possibilities that might have taken place had he said yes right there, right then, to Jesus. Perhaps Jesus invited him to follow him knowing that Judas was going to do what Judas was going to do and that maybe this man could have been his replacement. Or maybe Jesus might have said to him, like God said to Abraham, stop. Now I know you love me. So then go back to your father. Go back to Downton Abbey. Use it. Just remember you don't own it. And you're saying, oh, Randy, all you're doing is speculating. You're right, I am. Well, Randy, we, we, we'll never know. You're right. We'll never know, will we? We'll never know. And that's my point. We'll never know. Jesus offered to be this man's substitute for his down abbey. This man said no, and now we'll never know. We'll never know his future. And you know what's ironic about this? What happened just prior to this conversation? Why, it's in Mark 10, 13 through 16. The little children and Jesus. It's ironic, isn't it? The little children who had nothing are received into the kingdom of God, while the rich young ruler who had everything was not. But that's what happens. When you say no to Christ, you close yourself off from all the possibilities of what he could have done through you, and you'll never know. You'll never know. This, Jesus took this man to a defining moment, a decision point. This man, this man came thinking uh, that, you know, all he needed to do was just tell me where to put these last two nails because my life is going well. I just need you to tweak it a little bit, adjust it here and there. And Christ says, I want you to detonate the house. I want you to divest yourself of it. And at that point, the man understood the real question wasn't what must I do? It's who owns me? Who possesses me? Whom do I worship? 
who is my real God? And when he walked, we all found out, didn't we? And this leads me to the second conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. Because Jesus' look then turned to them, right? The scripture says, the scripture says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, he said, you know, it's really hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples said, yeah, Lord, you're right. No, that's not what they said. Verse 24, when Jesus said that, the disciples, they said, the scripture says, verse 24, they were amazed at his words. Why? Why were they amazed at his, well, as I said earlier, first century Israel, the average Hebrew believed that to possess riches was to possess the smile and favor and blessing of God, and Christ just rocked their world. And in case anybody missed the point, Jesus drives it home even further. Children, he says. It's the only time in Mark's gospel he calls the disciples children. 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 It's just plain flat hard to enter the kingdom of God. And then he uses this very familiar parable this little one verse parable in verse 25 it's it's easier for a camel which was the largest animal in Israel to go through the eye of a needle which is the smallest space in Israel it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God And all God's people said, amen. Give it to them, Randy. Just pour it on those rich people. You consider yourself rich? Ah, be careful. See, wealth is relative, right? It's relative. It's relative. Relative to what? Well, since it's relative, let's just make it relative to the rest of the world. Okay? So, When you go home this afternoon, get on your computer and look up globalrichlist.com, globalrichlist.com, and you'll get a question, how rich are you? Take your annual income, click U.S. dollars, not pounds or yen or whatever, but U.S. dollars and I plugged in the number $35,974. Why did I use that amount? Because that is the um, gross salary of a first-year teacher at Champaign School District with a bachelor's degree. So it's the, you're at the, that's base salary, okay? Entry-level salary for a teacher, that's gross, 34974 And at that level, you would be in the top 4.34% richest people in the world. So don't tell me you're not rich. And I, I'm rich. We're rich. Relative. Someone prayed this prayer. Dear Lord, I have been rereading the record of the rich young ruler and his obviously wrong choice, but it has set me thinking 
No matter how much wealth he had, he could not ride in a car, turn on a light, buy penicillin, watch HDTV, load the dishwasher, check his email on his iPad, mow a lawn, fly in an airplane, sleep on an inner spring mattress, or talk on his smartphone. If he was rich, then what am I? And after this parable of the camel and the needle, verse 26 says, the disciples were even more amazed. Well, it's like Jesus, we, I mean, if, if that guy walked away, really? You really let him walk away? I mean, do you, did you really need him to liquidate it all? I mean, could, couldn't you have just, man, he could have been a good, I mean, we could have used his tithe, Lord. I mean, what, you know, he, Matt, we could use a Matthew Crawley in our group. You know, I mean, he could have validated us. He could have helped get us on good financial footing. I mean, this guy, this guy was already funding orphanages and hospitals, and he's asking the right question. I mean, he fell on his knees. He didn't come to test you, and then you, you weren't very diplomatic. I mean, you know that in our culture, there's always some haggling that goes on. I mean, come on. If someone like him isn't getting in, then what hope is there for the rest of us? Verse 26. Who then can be saved? And their church question, uh, church family, is the question that just gets Jesus to sit up straight. Ah, finally, now, an even better question than what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, this, is the, this really is the best question. Who can be saved, you ask? Who, who can be saved? Jesus says, no one. Nada, no one. It's impossible. No one. I mean, that is such a heavy, terrible, and important truth. And here's why. Here's why. Look up here for a minute. I don't know how it is in your world. I'll tell you how it is in preacher land. Okay? Many ministers, myself included, see, this is our dirty little secret. We've cut a deal with God, and it sounds something like this. God, I'll go into the ministry. I'll preach the gospel. I'll tell the world that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus. I'll pastor a flock. I'll give 10% and more, and I'll put up with cranky church members. I'll do it. But in exchange, I want to guarantee that when that plane takes off to heaven, I'm going to be on the plane. That's why I don't have to sit in first class. I don't have to have fancy leather seats. I don't mind sitting back with the engines. I don't mind. But I want to be on that plane. And, and, and many ministers say that to themselves. That's our dirty little secret. We, we'll never say it to you, and we'll never write about it. But that's what goes on in preacher land. That go, that's what goes on in, in my hunch is that it's not just ministers. What do you think? And Jesus just detonates that legalistic what's in it for me quid pro quo mindset. He looked at his disciples just like he looked at the rich young ruler and he says, no one can. With man, this is impossible. There's nothing figurative about that, church family. 
You cannot thread a camel through the eye of a needle. You can't, period. But God can. God can. God God can thread a camel through the eye of a needle better than you can thread a thread through the eye of a needle. You know, I got to get these glasses on. I got to lick that thread to try to stick it. God doesn't need that. He just, he's just, it's a one time. Boop, he got it through. Why? Because he's God. He's God and you're not. And that's why he can. Okay? Which means, I mean, is this news to anybody? Do you understand the miracle of your salvation? Do you understand that it is a miracle that you and I are here right now? Do you you understand that it's a miracle that I'm standing here? Really? It is a miracle of grace. How supernatural it was. For God to release me and redeem me and liberate me from the kingdom of darkness and adopt me into his kingdom. That's a mere, we are here because of God's grace in Christ. And this is what Peter says, well, we've, we've parted with family and we've parted with the family estate. We've parted with those two main drivers and, and you know, Peter left his fishing boats and Matthew left his tax. We've left and Christ says, yes, and my grace has made that happen and, and and you've made me your identity, and you've trusted me, and, and so by my grace, I am allowing you, I'm giving you as, as an act of grace, your inheritance, the kingdom, and I'm going to turn the world's values on its head. Verse 31, the first will be last, the last first. That's his conversation with them. And now I can hear his conversation with me. Can you hear his conversation with you? He's speaking to us now when he says, in no uncertain terms, he says, I want you to part with whatever it is that fights most for the loyalty of your heart. That's what I want. That's it. Whatever fights most for the loyalty of your heart, I want that. It's mine. Give it. So you came in here this morning, and you got these little plastic coins. What is this? Is this an object lesson? Yes. It is. What's on the face of your coin? What's on, in, other words, in other words, what is the one thing that's competing for the loyalty of your heart right now? Right now, what is that? What is that? David Foster Wallace spoke these words at a commencement address when he said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism because the fact of the matter is everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. And, and, when, and when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. You worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid, and you'll never 
need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. You worship your intellect, you worship being seen as smart, and you're going to end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on and so forth. David Foster Wallace said that. David Foster Wallace was an award-winning, best-selling novelist. He was at the top of his academic profession. And when he was at the very top, in 2008, he committed suicide. Jesus says, whatever else you worship, whatever else you worship other than me will eat you alive. Your heart can only serve one God. And so whatever it is that's between you and me, you need to get rid of it. And I want you to part with whatever fights most for the loyalty of your heart. And what is that in your life? What is that? So Jesus' word to some of us here, it's the same word he spoke to the rich young ruler. Some of you need to get your stuff on eBay, sell it, give the money away, downsize, simplify, and follow Christ. Some of you need to go to the missions field. Some of you need to be like Sharon Getter, one of our missionaries, who for 28 years has faithfully served in East Asia. Still others of you, you need to put yourself in a defining moment. That's what you need to do. Like serving. Like signing up. Uh, later this spring, uh, this week, our staff met with Sheila Dodds, who runs the Habitat for Humanity um, program and ministry here in our community. And um, in lieu of a weekend of service this year, by God's grace and with his supply, we're going we're gonna to pour about 14 weekends to build a home for an under-resourced family by God's grace and God's power. I want you to think about that. You'll hear more about that from Lisa Sheltra in the weeks to come. Or how about this? Some of you out in the foyer need to go right out these glass doors and you need to sign up for Empty Tombs Cabinet Building Project. You may have read this in the News Gazette yesterday. On March the 2nd, from 8 a.m. to noon, Empty Tomb, they're, they're going to be building f- about 500 cabinets for children who need to put their clothes somewhere. And you could be a part of that. In fact, we're going to have a benefit concert to help raise money to pay for those cabinets uh, here at the church on February the 16th at 6 p.m., Still others of you need to read um, the book, which I mentioned, Lisa, earlier. You need, to, you need to read the book, When Helping Hurts. Because when you read that book, you'll understand that it's not just a matter of throwing money at poverty. It's a matter of establishing a relationship. That's what Jesus wanted with this man. He wanted a relationship. And still, Jesus' word for some of you is the word that he gave to the gathering demoniac in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 5. I want you to go home. I want you to tell your family what the Lord has done for you. See? Tell them. So, see, the thing that's competing is this, this fear of what will they think. You need to go and talk to them about what Christ has done for you. And, and still others of you, Jesus' word for you may be, you need to stay right where you are, but I'm going to put you in a situation where you have to depend on me. You have to. And I mention that because I met someone who is in that situation right now. And um, last week I was able to 
be at a pastor's conference, and that's why Jason uh, did such a great job uh, last week talking about humility and pride and the request of James and John, and so I'm so appreciative for um, his teaching. But I met a pastor uh, last week at this conference that I was able to go to, and um, for the last, I don't know, almost 29 years, he's been at a congregation and he's been faithful but about 20 years ago he went through an ordeal that made him just totally dependent on God's grace about 20 years ago he started developing um, nodules on his vocal cords or at least by then it had grown to the point where the surgeons had said you need to let us remove these nodules from your vocal cords and so he submitted to surgery and on the surgical table, uh, there was a mistake, and the surgeons clipped his vocal cords. He's a preacher of his congregation. And so they you know, patched it up as best as they could. And for the last 20 years, he's been you know, totally dependent on God's grace. This summer, he's going to retire. The guy's almost 70 years old. I want him to come here so that you can hear him preach the gospel in a voice that just is just like this. This is his voice. That's his voice when he's preaching. This is his voice when he's talking to his wife. This is his voice when he's on the, this grovelly, whispery, Batman-like voice. That's it. That's it. That's all. That's all he can do. But by God's grace, he's become a mentor to, to ministers like me. See? Whatever it is that's competing with Jesus for, on, for the throne of your heart, Jesus says, you aren't designed to worship more than one God. You can't serve two or three or six. It's one and only one. And I'm that one and every other God will eat you alive. And here's the deal. See, whatever Jesus asks you to part with, he's not going to leave you with less. That's the, that's the God. He wants to give you more. He wants you to have life that's truly life. That's why it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. And why was his heart so filled with love? Well, think about it for just a minute. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is in his early 30s. How old's the rich young ruler? He's in his early 30s. Jesus is talking to a contemporary. See, Jesus, too, is the rich young man. He's, also, he's the ultimate rich young ruler. He's far richer than this man could ever imagine. Jesus has lived in incomprehensible glory and wealth and love and joy in the presence of the Trinity for all eternity. And he left that wealth behind. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 9 that though Christ was rich, he became poor for our sake so that through his poverty we might become rich. Why? For us, for our sake. So he says to this this contemporary, look, I, I have given my big all to get to you. Can you give your little all to follow me? I'm not going to ask you to do anything more than I've already done. I am the ultimate rich young ruler who has given away ultimate wealth to get to you. Now you need to give away yours as, as a sign that you love me. 
And you understand that Jesus here is the ultimate rich young ruler. It's just going to change your life and your attitude and your job and your stuff and your family. And I'm pleased. I'm pleased to be able to say that so many of you are doing that. And I want to encourage you to do that more and more and more. Once you realize that Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler, you're not going to be trying to figure out how much you have to give away. You'll be trying to figure out how much you can give away. Because the real standard for generosity is the cross that takes us right back up to the top of this passage of Scripture because verse 17 says, as Jesus started on his way, some of your translations say on his journey. His journey where? His journey to Jerusalem. His journey to the cross. And in verse 22, it says the rich young ruler went away sad. Guess what? That same word appears later in the Garden of Gethsemane concerning Jesus when he sweat drops of blood because he grieved in deep distress. He was about to part with his father. Jesus is saying, I want your attitude toward your stuff to be transfigured and transformed by what I'm about to do on the cross. I want you to let my grace melt your heart. I want you to let my grace topple the idols that are competing for your heart. And I want you to let my grace take you where you could never go on your own. Follow me. Will you? Oh, Lord, thank you so much for showing us how to live the life you want us to live. And thank you for giving us the grace and the strength and the power to do with us and for us and through us what we could never do on our own. We love you. Amen.